I've been uh, interim pastor at a church up in the Palm Beaches area for the last three years, basically. So we've been driving 45 minutes to an hour, and now we have a two-minute commute to here. So it's really great. We're just down the road. Uh, so thank you for, for having me today. Let's uh, pray as we open up God's Word now. Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you that you spoke this world into existence And you spoke your word through your prophets and by your spirit. So we ask now, Father, speak again, that we might hear your voice. Open our ears to hear, that we might hear all that you have to say for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Our reading is from Acts chapter 8, and let's read God's holy word together. And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because he had for a long time amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they had laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw the Spirit was given through the laying of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither, you have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. And now, O God, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, if you've been a Christian for very long... You might have heard people talk about Christianity of the past as, well, the glory days. 
You know, there were these glory days, and let me tell you about the good old days. Depending on who you're talking to, the person you're talking to, you might get different glory days. But when were these glory days? When were the great good old days? Uh, One possible time that I often hear these days, particularly in our country, is 1950s America. Those glory days of the church. Especially as our American culture uh, continues to get more and more anti-Christian, it seems. A lot of people look back on this time in our history uh, where Christianity still seemed to rule the day, that American culture was still generally influenced by the gospel, by Christian faith, Christian principles. It doesn't mean everybody was a Christian, but it was quite tolerated in our land, and people often gave lip service to it. You could gain an audience by saying you were a Christian, maybe a pastor. But most of all, I think people look back to this time because Christians weren't persecuted then. Again, you wouldn't generally be opposed by saying, I think marriage should last for a lifetime and be faithful to one another. You expressed Christian views of sexuality, probably weren't harassed for it, for doing evangelism, calling people even to repent of their sin. Seemed a fairly peaceful time. That's good, right? Maybe another candidate for the glory days that I sometimes hear now is Christians talking about the early church. Uh, those glory days. If only we could get back to the perfect church of the apostles. Well, uh, if you've been listening to Pastor Larry's sermons, you've realized that there was quite a lot of problems even in those days, uh, things that were going on. But I think what people mean by saying those glory days, I'll hear it this way, is it used to mean something when you were a Christian then. It took courage to say that you were a Christian because of persecution Uh, And there's almost, uh, sometimes I hear people saying, I almost wish persecution would do that work again, where people would be courageous about their faith, kind of almost hankering for that kind of opposition that things might go well again. So you get sort of the, the 1950s peaceful time and more of the hardcore persecution time of people saying those were the glory days. I want us to think about these two ways of talking that you might hear as we look at our passage today. And what we're going to see is that both of these ideas are actually right there in what Luke tells us in the early church. Uh, A time of cultural acceptance of the gospel and time of persecution. And we see both persecution and and, uh, people receiving the gospel in mass with both opportunities and challenges. Both these things have a great opportunity. Both these things have great challenges as well. And if I can hint at kind of where we're going on this, I think what it means is we shouldn't idealize either situation. That God can work in any kind of way. And what matters is not, I wish I was in this situation or in this situation, but are you faithful to the situation you're in? I'm reminded of the great quote in Lord of the Rings where Frodo says, I wish none of this had happened to me. I wish I wasn't in this situation. And Gandalf says, well, all that matters is what you do with the time given to you, this time that you're in. So we'll talk about this way in which God's kingdom expands, but how we need to trust God for how that works. And this really is an idea, again, that Pastor Trotter has been talking about and exploring already. We kind of already saw some central themes in the book of Acts. He looked at the opening passage where Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses, starting in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and then into the uttermost ends of the earth. And that's kind of the the theme of Acts as the gospel goes out. 
But we don't really get much of a sense of a strategy there from the beginning. I don't know if you noticed that. Jesus says, you will. It's not even a command, really. It's just, it's going to happen. And the apostles are kind of like, okay, (laughs) we don't really have a big strategy about how to do this, but I guess this is what we're called to do. Well, up until our passage today, we've seen how the disciples received the Spirit. They've been preaching in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem's kind of been the main center. The gospel's getting out there. We see a logistical problem going on that was preached about, I think, a few weeks ago uh, with the widows that were poor and needed to be taken care of. And, And that obstacle is overcome as well with the choosing of deacons. And although this wasn't covered, I believe, in our sermon series, but the context for this passage then today is that one of those deacons who was chosen, Stephen, is preaching the gospel and he's killed for his faith. There is an opposition to him and Stephen is executed as a mob, the first martyrdom dying for Jesus in the early church. And so let's look then the first verse of our passage today refers to this. It says in Saul who's actually kind of just casually named here, we don't really know much about him, approved of his, that's of Stephen's, execution. And immediately Luke tells us that this isn't an isolated incident. The killing of Stephen isn't just a one-off thing. It's now the beginning of a persecution campaign. We've gotten one down, and now they're going after the disciples of Jesus in Jerusalem. And the word for persecution here in this passage is actually, interestingly, the word for chase or hunt. And that's exactly the image of what we see happening. Look at verse 3. Saul was ravaging or literally destroying the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. There's a sort of image here of a hunt from house to house, getting into the house catching where they're meeting, almost like catching prey and ruining the church. Luke doesn't give us any kind of idealistic picture about persecution here, that this is great. He says it's destroying the church. It's ruining the church. But in the midst of all of this, we also see the early church burying Stephen's body. Verse 2, devout men made a great lamentation over him. Notice that these are good Christians and they're not celebrating Stephen's death. They're weeping. Again, no sort of romanticizing about persecution. Beloved, it's good to know it's right for Christians to mourn, to make even a great lamentation. Not just a kind of little whimper and cry here. A great lamentation and even someone who died courageously. It's right. It's okay to do this. Well, what happens as a result of all of this persecution? Look at verse 1 again. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. We need to spend a moment thinking about this. And let me just say this really as plainly as I can. Persecution came to the church and everybody got out of town. They fled. Luke even includes the word all. Everyone scattered. And even he says, except the apostles, they stay. Is this the perfect church of the New Testament? Were they wrong to hightail it out of there when the the, sort of uh, everything got hard and difficult? You know, some of the hardcore Christians I mentioned at the beginning probably are tempted to say, well, this was a mistake. I mean, even some of the church leaders actually take it on the run. Notice that Philip, who we're about to meet in a second, he's a deacon. He's been ordained in the church. And where do we find him? He's on the run in Samaria. Shouldn't they just have stayed put courageously? 
Now, there's a bit of nuance here, and I can't get into all of this, but I want you to tell you that the Bible is often more practical than we give it credit for. Listen for a second to Jesus' words. These aren't mine. <laughs> These are Jesus' words in Matthew 10, 23. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. <laughs> when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. Interestingly, Jesus is actually talking to the 12 at that moment, and those are actually the ones who stay in Jerusalem. But Jesus is laying out some practical principles here of Christian mission. We should be really cautious to accuse Christians who leave places of persecution for their own safety, as if that was somehow wrong of them. Even the Apostle Paul is going to do this. So what's the principle then here about how this works? Most of all, the church, most of all the church leaves and the apostles stay. The principle is faithfulness where you are. Whether you stay, whether you go. Verse uh, 4 really gives us the answer to this. Now those who scattered went about preaching the word. Hear that. Okay? They're being persecuted. Why are they being persecuted? Because they're preaching the word. So they don't want that persecution. So they leave preaching the word. In other words, they're not going to stop preaching the word even if they flee. You can stay or you can go, but you don't stop preaching the word. In other words, you could stay in this situation but stop talking about Jesus and that'd be wrong. Or you could go and stop talking about Jesus and that would be wrong. Or you can stay or go and keep talking about Jesus. The church is still spreading the gospel. I mention all this to kind of make sense of the text, but also to give us some practical wisdom and application. Maybe you are like me and you read all these things in the news about what is it going to be like for Christians in this country coming up and you never know. But there are things ahead of us where it's possible that persecution could come in greater ways. Maybe the loss of a job for a Christian, which in some ways I've already heard in many ways. Not to be alarmist, here. But we have to be wise and ready. So this passage sort of jumped out to me how it's not a Christian shame for us to take our families if there's a difficult situation and move somewhere else. But here's the challenge. Don't stop talking about Jesus. Don't stand down from the thing that will get you persecuted anywhere. Trust Jesus and talk about him. We're public Christians wherever we go. The apostles seem to stay in the persecution as sort of a good leader often draws fire on himself. That's almost the picture I kind of get uh, as if in a, in a battle, uh, you know, the captain stays while everybody else gets out and he's drawing the fire on themselves. The apostles know that Jerusalem is the center of the church there at the beginning and they're good shepherds. They're willing to lay down their lives for the sheep. Uh, this reminds me of the ordination vows of our denomination, which I took, Pastor Larry took as well. And I think the one that stuck out to me most when I said it and still does today, is this line. I was asked, and I can ask you again, Larry, do you promise to be zealous and faithful in maintaining the truth of the gospel, whatever persecution or opposition may arise unto you on that account? Serious words, but words that we should all take. It's the calling of pastors, and it's in a sense the calling of all of us as well, to respond faithfully in whatever time we're given. Well, in the rest of this passage, Luke is going to follow those who scatter. So there's not persecution in Jerusalem. We're going to go out. And the word is actually a diaspora. We might recognize in English scattered ones. It's interesting that in the Old Testament, God scattered his people. And that was often a sign of judgment, of sin, 
uh, Israel's exile to Babylon, for example. But this is actually a done in faithfulness. We hear that God is actually using this situation to fulfill that mission, not derail it. Again, when the disciples heard Jesus say in Judea and in Samaria, that might have been sort of odd to hear. And they probably didn't have a plan to do that. Well, now the plan is being fulfilled out. As Saul is devastating the church, we shouldn't romanticize that very thing, but God can use this for a good end. And Luke actually wants us to be thinking about this because he again uses that phrase in Judea and Samaria, same phrase from earlier in the book. They didn't really have a plan, but God's plan is being brought through the persecution of the gospel. In fact, we're actually going to hear how this guy who's persecuting is going to be the one who then takes it the step further to the uttermost ends of the earth. So after giving Jerusalem a chance, you might say, to hear the gospel, God's going to give others the chance to hear good news now of God's king and anointed one. So it's worth thinking now again about this place called Samaria. We heard a little bit from Pastor Larry about Samaria earlier. What's special about it? You might remember Jesus' earlier ministry, stopping in Samaria, and the disciples are shocked that he would stop in Samaria, even talk to a Samaritan woman. And why is that? Well, it's because of the history of these Jews and Samaritans. Well, Samaria was originally part of the promised land that God gave to his people in the days of Joshua. But later in the Old Testament, remember that God's people divided the north and the south. And in the north, Samaria, or Israel, was the capital city. So these are still part of God's people. But they turned away from God very quickly, even more quickly than the southern kingdom. Began to apostatize. They worshipped idols in their uh, capital city, Samaria. And God brought the Assyrians, as we heard, who came, captured the north. And not only did they take out some of the people of Samaria, they actually brought in some of their own people to mix in Samaria. So uh, it's sort of an old division, there's hospitality, but it's that mixing in a sense that was the most difficult for the Jews to swallow. That's why they would call them actually half-breeds, was a sort of a, a term of, uh, of derision for the Samaritans because they were part of Abraham's line, but now mixed in, it seems like, with these Assyrians. Uh, it seems like they started to mix in some of that pagan religion as well. We're about to see that there's a magician uh, apparently doing quite well in Samaria. And that's why most devout Jews avoided Samaria. Again, why it was surprising that Jesus would stop in his ministry. Now, we don't know why Philip was going to Samaria. Um, in one picture, we could just see kind of Philip running in whatever direction, and it happens to be Samaria on his way. Perhaps there's a more devout sense of Philip knows that Samaria is next on Jesus' mission list, and he's going there. Well, either way, Philip is faithful in what he does. He opened his mouth and talked about Jesus. I always have a friend who says, evangelism, it gets as easy as this. Open your mouth and talk about Jesus. And it's a word indeed ministry. Philip is doing deeds of physical and spiritual healing. And amazingly, the Samaritans believe. Verse 8 is such a great verse of this passage. It's short and to the point, but amazing. There was so much joy in that city. The city rejoiced. We've gone from a persecuted minority, the Christians uh, in Jerusalem, to at least in this place, a believing majority. Cultural influence. Remember the two poles I mentioned at the beginning between uh, sort of peaceful influence and 
persecution as a minority. Well, the rest of this passage then, I want you to think about as a kind of case study of the other side of the church's ministry. What happens when a whole group of people say, yes, we'll become Christians, we'll accept Jesus. Now are the challenges and opportunities on the other side too. So in order to tell this story, Luke's going to backtrack a bit and give us some background of what's happened in the transformation of this city. Look at verse 9 there. Uh, We're going to be introduced to one character in particular, a man named Simon. And Simon is Luke's case study about the church's mission here in Samaria. So what do we know about Simon? Well, first of all, let's say something about Simon's name. He doesn't actually have an Assyrian name. It's a Jewish name. It's a form of Simeon, if you wanted to know that from the Old Testament. It's actually probably one of the most common names of this time for Jews, one of the 12 sons of Jacob of Israel. But Simon is a magician. So already we've got this sort of paradox of believing Old Testament name, a magician. And not a magician, by the way, like David Copperfield. He's not pulling rabbits out of hats or making his dis- assistants disappear for a time. Simon, the re- word really means sorcerer. Uh, sometimes you might hear the name Simon Magus. It's actually a phrase that comes from the early church. This is because the word Magus is the word for magician. Simon the magician. Really, I was thinking about it, and voodoo is probably the closest equivalent of what we might know today. And we're here in South Florida, so you might know some of the things that go on with that. People probably paid Simon to place curses upon their rivals, maybe their business rivals, to perform healings, to give divinations about the future. And apparently, apparently Simon really isn't a fraud about this either. He seems to have actually had some kind of touch or communication with demonic activity. Uh, because he amazed the people of Samaria. Somehow it seems like some of these things are going on. So it seems like this is uh, a demonic activity going on. The people called him the great power of God. It's kind of like Simon is almost an incarnation of God, his right-hand power on earth. So we, we get this Philip coming in to show the power of God and the gospel and the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And there's Simon the guy of the city who they already call the great power of God. But here we see the power of the gospel able to to overcome all earthly powers. Even these deceived people came to believe. It's interesting that Luke uses many of the same words to describe Philip's ministry in Samaria as to describe what was happening with Simon, magician's activity. So, Uh, Philip works wonders, same phrase as what Simon says. Simon drew crowds, people paid attention to him. And so the crowds now pay attention to Philip and his message. Their amazement sort of shifts from Simon to Philip. And if you're tracking with me on this, you might kind of just think psychologically, you'd think Simon's going to be pretty angry about the fact that there's amazement is now somewhere else. So we're probably expecting Simon to be the now new opposition of this city. But here is the amazement. Even Simon himself believes. This is what the gospel does. It challenges, it rivals, it changes hearts, it moves people from uh, devoted to falsehood to truth. Now we're going to have to look in a second about what this means for Simon, and there's all kinds of ambiguity But we need to see even just the amazement that Simon now is softened, at least, to the gospel. 
And as always happens in the book of Acts, entrance into Christ's kingdom is connected with baptism. So people believe, they're baptized, they're brought into the church. And again, Luke ends this section with the most amazing twist of all. Even Simon himself believed. After being baptized, he continued with Philip, or who actually became committed alongside Philip, devoted with Philip. Um, it is almost a, an extra emphasis Luke gives on us. It says, even Simon himself, same in Greek, there's three words to kind of emphasize Simon comes to this as well. And I said, Acts doesn't actually romanticize persecution, so we shouldn't hear either. Persecution isn't a good thing in itself. It's not going to get the church straightened out itself. We shouldn't long for persecution. But we might ask now the flip question. Does Acts romanticize cultural acceptance of the gospel. Hey, once a city believes, <laughs> it's easy. It's all downhill from there. No, we're going to see that this has its challenges as well. Challenges of persecution, challenges of when an entire people receive the gospel. The next few verses might seem to odd to us, but we need to remember Pastor Trotter's words kind of at the beginning of this series that not everything that happens in Acts is normative, that meaning that continue on the same way for the rest of church history. So the Samaritans believe they're baptized, but apparently they don't have the same experience of the Spirit that happened earlier at the disciples for Pentecost. Uh, this doesn't happen, by the way, to every group of people in the rest of the book of Acts, but certain ethnic groups that kind of represent a major breakthrough, a major milestone of the gospel, it's like Pentecost happens again. Pentecost kind of reiterates what goes on here. So they're speaking in tongues. It seems like there's a miraculous giving of the Spirit uh, for the first time. Uh, it's going to happen later to the first outright Gentiles that believe. And it happens when the gospel enters a new kind of people, the new for the first time in this way that God is showing, authenticating that, yes, these people, yes, even the Samaritans belong just like the apostles. They don't get anything different than the apostles in this way. They have a place in the people of God. So the Jerusalem apostles come down to Samaria. They're kind of it's almost like an official welcoming party to the outsiders who had been Outside in the Old Covenant, now they're received into the church, signaling that they're not on the fringes, they're not second-class Christians, they're right along here in it. I find it interesting that Peter and John come to do this. If you can kind of think back for a second, you remember anything about John and Samaritans? <laughs> if you remember when Jesus was passing through Samaria, it's John who says to one of Jesus about one of the Samaritan villages, can't we rain down fire on these people in judgment? And Jesus is like, no, no, you're missing the point here. It might be the same village. I want to think this is the same village where John's now coming back to, good thing I didn't rain down fire on this village, because now the fire of the Spirit is coming down, not in judgment, but in glorious grace and peace. What an amazing juxtaposition there. But here's where things get... Most interesting, it's here where the case study really gets practical. We're told that Simon had believed, we're told that Simon is baptized, and it seems like, it seems like he's among those whom the apostles lay their hands on to receive the Spirit, but it's here that Simon sees an opportunity. When he sees the apostles laying their hands and giving the Spirit to those, it says he offered them money. When he saw what was going on, he gets out his checkbook and he says, give me this power too, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. 
I find it interesting that Simon actually isn't trying to pay to receive the Spirit, which is kind of sometimes the way it's read here, but actually to give the Spirit to others. Now, why might that be significant? Well, it seems like the old life of Simon comes roaring back. The old life of the flesh is hard to shake, isn't it? Simon had had a very nice life giving out sort of spiritual favors to people, getting quite wealthy, it seems like, on this. And it seems like this is connecting to his work as a magician. Simon's impressed by all these miracles around him. Perhaps some in faith, it seems like, he is described as having believed. But it seems like, again, there's the old life of the flesh that says, wow, this is even better than my old job. I could step it up with this. Amazed at Philip, this amazement doesn't lead him really to a humble faith that God's gift is free after all. But it's a consideration of the commercial possibilities. It looks like Simon is thinking about this as an invest- investment. You, know, you get to pay up a little fund, so he's going to pay some. But it seems like he could charge others and get quite a, a backtrack on his investment, gain a fortune. We actually know from ancient history that some of these magicians were quite wealthy and able to charge prices to use their power. So Peter's response is really swift and strong. He's not playing around with Simon's request. Basically, Peter says, you and your money can go to hell. I know that sound, that's basically how you kind of read it in the Greek. You and your money with it can perish to destruction. That's what that kind of commercial exchange can go, Peter says. This is the wrong way to think about it. Peter goes on to say that Simon doesn't have a share in this matter. The matter might be this word, this ministry of the apostles and message. Not with this kind of attitude, Simon. You're not going to belong with this way of looking at the kingdom. Peter even gives a description of the inner state of Simon. His heart isn't right before God. He's still in the gall of bitterness, the bond of iniquity. These are pretty harsh words, aren't they? It's hard to read these. doesn't sound like Peter's very winsome. He wouldn't make it an American evangelical culture very well. Just sort of says it out. And Simon's response is almost equally kind of enigmatic. He says, pray for me. Peter says, you repent. And Simon says, you pray for me, that nothing of what you said may come upon me. Beloved, what do we do with Simon? I've been wrestling with this all week. I almost emailed Larry just saying, what do we do with Simon? Luke leaves us on such a cliffhanger. What do we do? What happened to him? How do we think about Simon? I think it's very easy for our first response to be judgment on Simon. You know, Simon's name has actually come to be memorialized. If you know the word simony, it's actually the the word that means buying spiritual office or buying spiritual power in some way. And we think, oh, Simon, (laughs) I can't believe you tried to do this. We would never do that. Trying to buy the power of God for yourself. Good thing we don't do that, right? We often do, beloved. It may not look the same way, but here is the challenge of the cultural acceptance of the gospel. Normalizing the power of the kingdom. We can buy it. We can pull the right levers and do the right tricks and have a place in the kingdom and spread it our way. That's not how the spirit is given. That's not how God's kingdom advances. 
It can look like that at times. By the way, Philip's miracles probably looked a lot like Simon's miracles, maybe that he did as well. If you think back to Moses and the miracles that were done before Pharaoh, and they could duplicate those. It looks the same, but it's not. It can look like the gospel can be spread by doing the right cultural things. It can look like the right methods and the right techniques are what do it. Beloved, do we do this here in America? All the time, we do. We do. We think we can do it. Get the kingdom this way. You, you know, find books. Find the first, you know, the, here's the technique of how to do it. This episode with Simon is Luke's warning to the church. And we might ask Luke, why, why put this episode in your story? Why not just kind of leave it on a high note? And the Samaritans all believed. Moving on. <laughs> but Luke wants us to show us the challenges and the opportunities of when the church is winning, when, it, when it's receiving, uh, when it's doing well, when the, uh, when the church, um, its message is being accepted. And also when it looks like when the church is losing. Do you see the juxtaposition in this passage? It looks like the church is losing. Ooh, it looks like the church is winning. And in both, there's more nuance. God is at work in this. It's his mission. But we have to trust his methods. Be faithful where he is at work. It's hard for me not to think about the parable of Jesus and the sower here in conclusion on this whole episode. We're told Jesus says that a farmer scattered seeds among different soil. Same word. Scattered people, scattered seeds. In that episode, it was Jesus sowing the message through his teaching. In this passage, it's Christians who are the scattered seed being put in different soil. And sometimes it receives it well, but there's withering that goes away. What happens in this is how is God at work in this? But here again, Acts is showing us that Jesus continues to do and teach through his church. And we are the scattered seed here at Florida Coast Church. Wherever, we're about to actually scatter here in a second. <laughs> All around. We're going to sow the word of God that's in us. Whether we're in the thick of persecution, it might be that you are in the thick of it. Maybe people are giving you a hard time at work or your family. Or it might be in a more comfortable place. But whatever place we're in... Don't be tempted to use the methods of the flesh. Keep trusting what Jesus said to rely on his spirit, to speak the word. Oh, it's not wrong, by the way, to want to see the city rejoice. I mean, that is, we want to see Pompano rejoice like Samaria. We want cultural acceptance of the gospel, no doubt about it. But we have to rely on God to do that. We have to rely on the spirit, his free gift. Money destined for hell isn't going to buy our way to kingdom influence or kingdom acceptance. Jesus often uses surprising methods uh, to do this and that he is going to change people through this way. And that's where we're left with in this day. Let's ask God that he would do this for our city, that he would do this through us now today. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word, its promises and its challenges. It's good things to hear and it's rebukes for us to receive. So, Father, we pray that you would help us to receive both today. Help us to receive the rebuke that we would not rely on fleshly methods to receive and to promote the gospel. Help us to rely on your spirit. Help us to receive Jesus in the right way, is the free gift you have given to us in gratitude.
and empower us, God, to be the scattered seed here in this city and the cities around. Father, that people might rejoice and see your glory. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now then God's benediction as he commissions you. You can stand now as you're about to be scattered as the word of God in this city. And the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.